Hey, everybody. How you doing? And welcome to the John Riley Project. Good to be back. Um, been gone for like the last week. Was on a road trip, so I'm looking forward to sharing some of that with you. But, man, there's just been so much going on in the world today. So much interesting news, mass shootings. Uh, today is Equal Pay Day. I mean, I was looking at some of our local news here in my city of Poway, California, out here in San Diego County. And, and a lot of interesting conversation about cycling and transportation here locally, um, self-driving trucks. There's an interesting company here in, in San Diego that's getting into that technology. Um, Poway Unified was dealing with a, a web, uh, a not a website, a, a property site for that they were considering using for Costco. So I had so much to talk about here. Can't fit it all into one episode. So um, just want to, first of all, welcome you here. And, you know, this is a live stream we are live streaming on Facebook and YouTube. So, of course, I welcome your thoughts and comments. Just type them in and we'll get to them. But basically what we're going to cover today is um, I'll share just some updates on my, my road trip. Um, and then I want to talk a little bit about Equal Pay because today is Equal Pay Day, I think it is what it is, National Equal Pay Day. So we'll talk a little bit about that topic. And then definitely I got to talk about the mass shootings. <laughs> and normally I like to talk about issues that are more local. Um, but with the, these are such huge national stories. I just can't not comment on them. So um, I'll, I'll share my thoughts and, and, and ideas. But of course, I welcome your thoughts. So be sure you participate in the live stream. Just type in your comments and questions, and I'll definitely read them on the air, and we'll make this a conversation. Um, but yeah, this is episode 215. And so I just got back from my road trip last night or actually yesterday afternoon. And I left on, what was it, Tuesday of last week. So I was gone like almost exactly a full week. And it was great. And I I don't know if, if you ever have this flexibility in your life or depending on what kind of job you have, you may or may not be able to do this. But I was just dealing with COVID fever. You know, I work from home and of course I live at home. So I'm at home all the time. And this was an opportunity for me to get out and just, you know, get out of the house and see something different for a change of pace. And the beauty of my situation in my life is that my job, I can work from anywhere. Um, I do business consulting and marketing consulting for companies. I also do a lot of project work for companies that um, I do on weekly or monthly bases. And, and so I, I can do all of my work remotely. So I'm really fortunate that I can do it. But I wasn't sure really where I was going to go. And you know, I, I remember I mentioned before that I had gone on two different road trips during COVID, both of them to Pahrump, Nevada, and I enjoyed those. It was great. The solitude was great. I was able to work, able to do some deep thinking. Change of scenery is great. But there's something about Nevada that was just interesting to me because there's just so much territory there that's, that I had not seen. And I thought, well, I'm going to go deeper into Nevada to this time on this trip. And I had identified that there was a place I wanted to stay in Eureka, Nevada, which is up in northern, northern Nevada, and found an Airbnb up there that looked really cool. And I said, I'm going to go there. That's going to be my destination. It's an old west, old mining town. Sounded cool. But I knew I couldn't get there in one go. So when I left Tuesday, in fact, when I left the house on Tuesday, I wasn't sure where I was going to spend the night. And I ended up finding an Airbnb in Bullhead City, Arizona, and worked out great. I, in fact, I did one of my podcasts there from Bullhead City last week because I had a good internet connection. Um, and 
it was, you know, it was kind of an interesting place. It's right across the river there from Laughlin, Nevada. And it's definitely Trump country out there. You know, you see a lot of still a lot of Trump signs and Trump trucks and all kinds of that out there. It's interesting. Um, there's a certain degree of, I guess, some retirees that are out there. And then like most cities, I guess there's a, there's a definitely a population of tweakers that are out there in Bullhead City, too. But I was there for two nights and, and it was cool, uh, like experiencing Bullhead City because I'd heard about it. Never made it across the river to go to Laughlin, but that was fine. Um, and then I ended up driving north, and I went through Las Vegas um, and just had to stop at an electronics store on my way. And then I went eastbound on the 15, and then eventually started going north and went into um, – God, what were the cities I was in? Was it called Alamo, Nevada? I was there, and I was in um, – I went through Caliente, Nevada, and this was kind of on, I can't remember the highway, but it was really close to the Utah border. And as I was going northbound, I was far closer to Utah than I was to California. And I worked my way eventually up to Ely, Nevada, um, which is probably one of the few places of decent civilization in eastern Nevada, and experienced that city. And then from there, I went westbound, and I was able to get to Eureka. And Eureka, Nevada is something. And it was a cool town. It's like an old West mining town. And when you're in, when you're in Eureka, Nevada, it's, it feels like a time warp. I mean, the, the buildings and, and the style of the city is just like a throwback to another era in many cases to the 19th century, you know, with their courthouse and they have an opera house and old saloons that are up and down the street. And there's only about, I think thousand, maybe 1500 people that live there. And I ended up staying in this hotel called the Colonnade, and it was a hotel built in the 1880s. But the owners came in and transformed it into an Airbnb, and they built two um, essentially you know, studios in the building that they rented out for Airbnb, and then they built the rest of the inside of the building. They built it for themselves, so they live there. And they've really transformed this property. And it was really cool. And the inside of the Airbnb was unbelievable. Amazing, well, de uh, amazing design. It was multi-story and our, the kitchen was upstairs and um, we had a small bedroom up below. And then a half step down was like in a sunken area was a bathroom and it was really cool. And then the the owners were just took so much pride in their property. And that's what I, the greatest thing I love about Airbnb is that there are, there are true entrepreneurs that are finding ways to monetize their property, monetize their, their housing essentially. And they, they take great pride in the design and setting it up. So it's welcoming to visitors and you can see that for them, it's a passion project, but it's also an opportunity to make some money and then be able to live a really cool lifestyle in a really neat part of the country. And so I just thought the the owners of the place were fantastic, and I just love their whole approach. And I stayed there for three nights, and it was and then my final night I was there. It snowed all day and into the evening, and I wasn't prepared for that. You know, being from San Diego. Um, so I had to deal with snow on my drive, but actually winding the clock back when I was out there on Friday, I went for a walk through town and was out near the county courthouse there. 
and their stairs, they were kind of funky and I tripped on them and man, I twisted the hell out of my ankle so bad. But I ended up recovering from that. And then I watched that Aztec game on Friday night against Syracuse. That was brutal. Um, but I, you know, I've been rooting for that team all season long and then they just had a tough go against Syracuse. That was a, that was a tough loss for them. But I still made the most of my time there. I was able to get in a lot of work. A big part of this trip for me was the change of scenery. There was certain projects that I had to finish for my for my business, not projects for my clients, but projects for for me in, as I'm working to build my company. So I needed that change of scenery, that kind of uh, you know pattern interrupt to be able to rattle my brain and get a new creative approach. And it was extraordinarily helpful for that. And um, just, I really, you know, there was nothing really for me to see in Eureka, Nevada. There, it's not really a tourist destination, but it was just someplace far away. And it was someplace that I thought could spark some creativity for me. And it, and it did. In fact, when I got there, uh, I got all my stuff into to my room and then went down to like this local like tavern and just had a cheeseburger and a beer and ended up talking with a guy there at the bar and he's a miner and he was telling me about the mining they do. And, you know, Nevada is known as the silver state. Well, in Eureka, they mine for gold. And the, I learned a lot about this process, which was fascinating because you the, the gold that they're mining for is microscopic. You know, it's not like you got, you know, guys out there with pickaxes and then they can see like a gold rock. I mean, it doesn't exist that way. They actually are able to pull out the, uh, the, the, the ore and then they're grinding it down. And then they have a chemical process that's able to separate the gold from the rest of the ore. And it's microscopic, but when they separate it, then they can actually get a reasonable quantity of it. It was a very interesting process, but I learned a lot. It was fascinating to me. And then I got in my car on, gosh, what was it? Sunday morning. And my car was covered in about eight inches of snow. <laughs> and I'm in my electric car. And, you know, I've been doing my charging all along the way and having fun with that. I, and I, I think I've told you I have a separate YouTube channel where I review electric vehicle charging stations. And I do these little three and four minute videos when I'm ever at those stations. It's, it's called Trigger Energy, if you want to check it out. Um, and I have been charging my car along the way. I had charged in Ely. And when I drove westbound, to Eureka, I had about 115 miles in my car. And I had to get to the city of Austin, Nevada, which was 70 miles to the west. And I figured, okay, I got 115 miles of range. I've got 70 miles to go to get to Austin. Can I make it? I figured, no problem. But then it snowed and the snow was significant. It, they cleared the roads, thank goodness, but there was snow everywhere else. And you hear the stories about electric cars and how the battery is diminishes its its capacity diminishes its charge in the cold, and I was worried about that. Um, and then I'm trying to get all the snow off of my on my car, and the windshield was just tremendous ice on it. And I was able to get some of it off, but I didn't have a scraper. And I tried to go to the store in the morning, and nothing was open because I had left early. And so I just sort of made do with it. And I'm driving, and I didn't want to turn on the defroster too much because that also drains the battery. And I only had about, gosh, maybe 45 miles of, of fudge in it. But I ended up driving westbound on Highway 50, you know, the loneliest, what do they call it? Um, 
the yeah the loneliest road in America, right? So I'm driving westbound on that, and it's you know there's snow to the left of me, snow to the right of me, and the road was clear. And then I had to get to Austin, and to get to Austin, I had to go up a really you know big hill. I got up to the summit; it was at 7,500 feet. Frankly, I was surprised the roads were open up there, but I was able to get through. And then I dropped into town, into Austin, and I actually got pulled over by a cop when I was in Austin, and. He uh, he told me I was doing 37 in a 25 and I told him my story. Hey, man, I'm just here. I just got to charge my car. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. The charging stations are right down the street. And he let me off. I was like overjoyed. And so I went about my business, charged the car up and then went back over the summit of 7,500 feet and then started heading southbound. And I went down through Tonopah and then worked my way to another Airbnb where I had stayed for a couple of nights, and that was in Amargosa Valley. And Amargosa Valley is, you know, maybe 100 miles away from Las Vegas, and it's right on the California-Nevada border, and it's right near Death Valley, and there is nothing in Amargosa Valley. I mean, it is barren. It is in the desert. And the crazy part of this is, is that the Airbnb that I had was a standalone house. It was a three-bedroom, two-bath house. And when I got there, the house, it looked like a big Lego brick because it was like a manufactured home. And there's no, obviously out there, there's no front yard and nice trees and no backyard. I mean, it's just desolate. It's like you're landing on the moon out there. And when you look around in every direction, there's you can't see any housing except for the owner of that property had another manufactured home about 100 yards away. But between the two of us, there was almost no housing in any direction that I could see, although there were a modest number of people that lived out there. I don't know where, but there was agriculture that's done out there. But it was basically a place that this Airbnb was set up uh, to accommodate families and, and others that wanted to go explore Death Valley. So the inside of it had a lot of Death Valley um, uh, you know, artwork and, and maps and all sorts of things. It was kind of neat that way. Uh, but I really enjoyed that place. And I was able, again, in solitude to get a lot of work done. And that's what made this trip so great. Um, the road trip itself is just invigorating, getting out, seeing places that you've never seen before, especially when you're alone. It, it kind of has a special you know, personal meaning for you. And, and there, I always enjoy exploring, kind of going to areas I've never been, but I really made this a working trip. And while I was in Bullhead City, I was able to get in a podcast. But when I was in Eureka, Nevada, and in Amargosa Valley, Nevada, the internet speeds were terrible. And there was just no way I was going to be able to pull off a live stream with, with streaming video. So I didn't do a podcast last Friday and Monday. But now I'm back here on Wednesday, trying to stick back to this Monday, Wednesday, Friday routine. And already on the live stream, Mike Ryan chiming in, roar. You know, so there he is, the heart of the lion, Mike Ryan on the live stream. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Hope you and your family are doing well. Um, but, you know, it, it was it was good, the trip for me. And I ended up leaving yesterday morning really early, worked my way back to Poway and family, you know, Saw my my wife, my son, all is good. Um, but it was just nice to get away. And and I, I would hope that you may have the opportunity to do that sort of thing. 
even if you don't have a destination in mind, even if you don't have people that you want to visit, it's just the the whole idea is just getting out and finding new places, things that can spark your creativity, things that can make you think and get new perspectives. And hopefully, if you're if you're like me, I, I'm, I've been able to finagle my career in a way that I can work from anywhere. So this really was, you know, I, frankly, if someone had joined me on this trip, I told my wife, I said, if you were with me on this trip, you would have been bored out of your mind because I only did three things on this trip. I drove, I slept and I worked. <laughs> and But it was good. It was it was I needed that time. And I'm just really special that I got a chance to do it. But anyways, I'm back and I'm refreshed and looking forward to sharing some thoughts on, on a few topics here. And, you know, like I said, I I like to talk more about sort of local issues, you know, whether it's in my hometown of Poway or in San Diego County. And I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll talk about national issues, too. But, you know, there's so many other people that are talking about national topics, but still, sometimes they're just so irresistible when you have a podcast. You can't help but chat about them or, or comment on them. But there were some interesting local topics, and I'll probably get to these in another podcast. I mean, Poway Unified had a vacant lot. They were talking about selling it to Costco. That's been a big controversy out in the Del Sur Forest Ranch area. I hope to cover that one here pretty soon. Um, like I said, there is a company here in San Diego that's actually developing technology for self-driving semi-trucks, which I think is a fascinating idea. I want to learn more about them, but they're growing like crazy. And I think they have already gone public, if I recall, and they're growing their employee base. I think that's a really interesting story to explore. Um, here in Poway, there's a lot of conversation lately with um, editorials about the the um, – editorials about transportation, about bicycling, and that's a fun topic to explore too. But what I want to get to in these next two, the remainder of the podcast, I want to talk about equal pay because today is equal pay day. And I also want to talk about the mass shootings because I think those are important topics to get into. Uh, Pete Neal on the live stream chiming in, Amargosa Death Valley equals finding new objectives, <laughs> setting the bar a little low in my mind. In my mind. What are you talking about, Pete? Uh, the whole point of going on this trip was just to get away and to find a place where I can work in solitude. And, and you know, if I end up going to some of these crazy places, I actually don't spend a lot of money doing it. You know, it's a lot more affordable. Uh, but I just wanted to, just to explore. I wanted to go out in Nevada and see things I had never seen before, even if it was seeing a whole bunch of nothing. Uh, just good to get out. I will tell you, northern Nevada is actually you know, a pretty cool area. It's, it's, it's a lot more attractive than southern Nevada, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, I'm glad I'm back. So thanks, thanks again for chiming in. So let's get into this topic of equal pay. And this all goes back to the whole concept of equal pay for equal work, right? And this is the notion that women are frequently not paid the same amount of money as men are paid. And you'll hear... A lot of stats about this. I mean, one of the, the more common ones is that for every dollar a man earns, a woman only earns 82 cents. So there's a disparity. It's discrimination. It's not fair. And this has been a topic that kind of comes and goes with the, the political conversation. And we saw some of this conversation during the presidential campaign. Um, I read an article today, and it was by Jill Biden. Uh, and when Jill Biden first went into teaching, 
uh, her first job out of school. She got her job and she was really happy. And then she found out that other teachers that were men were making, she, she said she was only making 75% of what the men were making. And they were hired at the same time, teaching at the same school. And so she's been an advocate for equal pay for women as well. And so when this topic is brought up, it it makes a lot of sense at the top of mind. You know, this isn't right. We got to pay women more. It's got to be equal. But I've I kind of have a different approach to this. And, you know, of course, I don't think anyone should ever be discriminated against based on their gender or or their race or their sexual orientation. I mean, we can go down the list of, of issues where there shouldn't be discrimination based on pay. Of course not. But I often wonder if the people that talk about equal pay for equal work, if they're really sort of doing an injustice without even realizing it. Because when you have two people that are doing so-called equal work, they both may be in a job, they both, both may be doing that same job, and they both may be doing that same job for the same number of hours. But two people are, can be of significantly different value. Two people can produce significantly different results. And so I've often thought, well, why make it equal pay for equal work? It really should be, it really should not be about work. It should be pay should be about performance, about the value generated by the, the, the employee. And, and, and frankly, the whole notion of equal pay for equal work, I often thought, well, why should women limit themselves to what a man is paid? I mean, after all, shouldn't a woman be paid more than a man? If they produce more than a man, if a woman is better at her job and is generating more value for her employer and, you know, they're working the same hours as a man, they may be in the same category of a job as a man. But if their performance is greater, then they should make more than the man, not equal. And I always thought equal pay for equal work in many cases is, you know, short changes women in a lot of these situations. I mean, a great example, a fun example that I'll share with friends is that you remember Rick Astley? You know, he was the never going to give you up, you know, the Rick rolled guy. And imagine if Rick Astley gave a, you know, performed a, a, a 90 minute concert and he was able to charge money for those concert tickets. And let's say, he made a certain amount of money. Well, just to pull a number out of the air, let's say he made $10,000 for this concert, which probably a lot for Rick Astley for one performance. But imagine if another person performed also for 90 minutes. They also were a singer, but instead of being named Rick Astley, they were named Beyonce. Well, Beyonce should make a hell of a lot more money than Rick Astley, even though they're doing equal work, even though they're singing for 90 minutes and putting on a performance. Beyonce is far more valuable. People will pay more money to see her. More people will show up to see Beyonce. Beyonce should make more money. I mean, and we can go down the list of a lot of other cases like this, but a woman when we when they talk about equal pay for equal work, it always feels like they're shortchanging women. I, I always think it's not the right approach. It should be people should be paid based on their value, based on their performance. Now, in the case of Jill Biden, when she was hired and a man was hired at the same time, this was probably, gosh, maybe in the early 70s is my assumption when she first went to work. If she was making 75% of what a man earned, 
and they were both starting out with their first job. Well, that's not right, you know? Uh, And yeah, that seems reasonable to complain about, but hopefully she would be able to perform better than that man and then be able to negotiate for a higher wage. That's the way it should work. Now, I remember when I got my first job out of college and I went to work for uh, a computer company called Wang Laboratories. And they were like a big mid-range computer system company. And there were, how many of us were there? There were four or five of us. And we were called AMRs, Associate Marketing Reps. And we were basically like these newbies out of college that they were training you know, to be in computer sales. And all of us were in the same job doing the same work. And we all got paid the same, except for one other person. And this other person uh, was a year older than us and had worked for a year for Pitney Bowes. Maybe you've heard of them. They're the ones that have the postage machines that are common in office environments. So he had a year's uh, additional experience and he was paid more than the rest of us. The rest of us, we kind of all compared notes. We were paid the same. But our friend that had a one year of experience, he got paid more than us. Um, and, and coincidentally, he was black and the rest of us were white or Asian, uh, which was interesting uh, because usually you hear it flipped around that, you know, people of color are paid less. In this case, he was paid more, but we did equal work. Um, there's a lot of other cases. I mean, especially in sales where people are paid on commission. People that generate great value for their employer should be the ones that make more money. But the other part of this is, is I often wonder is, let's say there is a company and the owner of the company is just a bigoted a-hole and someone that, for whatever reason, wants to discriminate against women. Well, if he thought that, well, if, if he was like, granted, if he was getting equal work but was able to pay the women less. He maybe thinks he's getting away with something, but what he's really doing is he's kind of screwing himself because he ends up paying more for the men if they're doing equal work. And at the same time, it, uh, it, yeah, it ends up penalizing the, the, the business owner. And if he is forced to pay the women the same amount there's a good chance he ends up firing those women because he's a bigoted a-hole and the women end up losing. So it's there's a lot of weird dynamics to this, but i am always been a big supporter of the fact that people should be pay, paid based on value that they produce. And if they're in an environment where they're not being treated fairly for whatever reason, I mean, just get the hell out of there, you know, find another job or better yet, go into business for yourself and then you can determine how much you should be paid. You can set your own your own wage and determine your own value based on the money that you're able to bring in the door. That's again, why I'm a big proponent of entrepreneurism. Uh, So people can essentially control their income and control the flow of the amount of money that they earn. Uh, So when I hear these cases of equal pay and today's equal pay day, kind of hashtag equal pay. Well, again, I think why should a woman limit herself to what a man makes? Because if a woman's better at her job, she should be paid more than the man, not equal, more. (laughs) And I would hope people would see it that way. So anyways, I invite your thoughts and comments. 
you know, we're live streaming. So anything on YouTube, Facebook, if you've got comments there, feel free to type them in. Even if you want to make wisecracks about Amargosa Valley. Thanks, Pete. Um, and I invite your, you know, participating on social media. You know, I have my, my John Riley Project Facebook page. You can join us there. Also have the John Riley Project Insiders Group. We have some more interesting conversations there with some of the the more frequent listeners and viewers of the podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter at John Riley Poway. Um, after, actually, after my last podcast on Wednesday, where we talked a lot about the border issues that President Biden is dealing with right now, I had a huge conversation about that. It started out on Facebook and then went into YouTube, into the comments section. Me and Mike Devine. Mike is a, a guy here in Poway, a good guy, but he and I see things very differently, especially when it comes to immigration. So we had a pretty interesting conversation. So I welcome you to check out that discussion. I think there's a thread of that in the John Riley Project Insiders Group and then also in the YouTube page. Um, so I always enjoy continuing the discussion on social media. So, you know, please join us there. Okay, so now let's talk about these mass shootings. And this is a difficult, difficult discussion because, well, first of all, obviously there's been tremendous loss of life, right? I think how many people died in Atlanta? I think there were eight people. And then in Boulder, Colorado, I think 10 people lost their lives. Um, in both cases, senselessly, and and you know we can talk about the shooters and all that, but I don't really want to get into that too much. But it's obviously every time we seem to have these mass shootings, and there's always a big one of some form, almost once a month, and it seems like we go through the same process every time, right? There's, you know, you, originally you start off by the thoughts and prayers, and then there's people with the memorials and. The, and then there's the families that are grieving and the people in the community that are that are bringing flowers to the site of the shooting. And then, of course, the conversations on gun rights and and gun control come up and and it's the same discussion. Right. It's the same conversation. And so I want to kind of take a little bit of a different approach as we go through this, because I have some different thoughts and opinions on this now. It is interesting that, you know, first of all, the people are the people that are upset about this. And frankly, we all should be upset about it. It's 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 awful what happened in these cases. But especially our friends on the left, our progressive friends, our Democratic friends, you know, they're like, do something. We need to do something. We need to enact gun control. But those damn Republicans on the other side, they're blocking it and they're getting money from the from the gun manufacturers. And this isn't right. And, you know, I get it. I mean, you know, like they were saying, what, 70 to 80 percent of Americans want more gun control. But yet the government, the federal government won't pass more gun control laws. So what the hell is going on? Now, meanwhile, the, the crazy thing that's interesting is that, you know, while the, the, the gun laws never really seem to change much, the gun manufacturers, every time there's this flare up, you, their sales shoot through the roof. And it often makes you wonder, do the gun manufacturers, is it in their best interest just to have a a second amendment that's kind of steady and calm and works reasonably well? Or do they prefer these cases when everyone's shrieking about more gun control laws? Because whenever they do, their sales just, 
you know, rock it up, which is just bizarre. Um, but I actually, it makes some sense. I think, you know, people are paranoid that if guns are made illegal, then they've got to get the guns now. And there's just a lot of fear and irrationality and so much that goes on with this gun debate. And the people that are hardcore gun people and they're the hardcore anti-gun people and everyone's got their thoughts on this, but we never seem to change anything. Now, in the early 90s, I think President Clinton, if I recall, got a mass or what was it, a assault weapons ban that would lasted for about 10 years or 15 years, something like that. And then the Republicans let it expire. That's been a topic that you know, people are upset about and feel like we got to ban these weapons of war. And, you know, this whole thing just it's more rhetoric. It seems like in many ways this discussion is similar to the immigration discussion. The the right and the left keep fighting. They keep bouncing their talking points back and forth. And we heard every argument in the book for guns, for the Second Amendment, as well as anti-guns and gun control. We've heard all the common talking points but nothing ever seems to change. And it makes you wonder, do, the, do, do you think maybe our elected officials like that? Because this is a topic that works really well for them when they're out on the campaign trail and when they're working to build their base and get their people voting because, you know, certain, you know, like Senator Ted Cruz from Texas, you know, he's going to protect our gun rights. And then you've got Bernie Sanders from Vermont, and, he, and everyone may vote for him because he wants to have more gun control. So this works for them, but they never are able to come together, and the situation never changes. So now, my background is a little bit interesting. And there, when I was younger, there were guns in my life. So my stepfather had guns, and he had rifles and shotguns and, and handguns, but they were always kind of tucked away, you know, they were outside of my view as a young child, but it was always, I always knew they were there somewhere because they were always being discussed at some level. And then I remember as I got older, um, I got a BB gun, I remember. And I remember going out into this area, God, I don't even know where it was, sort of like somewhere in between San Jose and Santa Cruz and was shooting the BB gun with one of my cousins and they were really into it. I not so much was into the gun thing. Just never, I was never really completely at ease around them for obvious reasons. Uh, but guns were, were always, they were, they were part of my growing up. Um, not so much that they were front and center, but they were always kind of there and there was discussion about them. And, you know, my stepfather had a history as a hunter and he would bring up a lot of those stories. And, I remember even as an 11-year-old, this is a kind of a crazy story, is, you know, on Christmas morning or even the, the week leading up to Christmas, there will be gifts that are under the, under the Christmas tree. And I remember there was one gift under the tree that was in a, like a box, and it was kind of heavy. And I was really intrigued by what this gift was going to be. And finally, it was Christmas, and I was able to open that gift up. And I opened it up, and what was it? It was a wooden gun rack that I could hang in my bedroom to put my BB gun or BB rifle. And then there were two more slots on it for additional rifles. And I was like, I was a disappointment for me. I remember as a child, like, why am I getting a gun rack? And I'm like 11 years old. Um, so 
I've you know been around guns, and at the same time, I've had kind of really mixed feelings about it. And gosh, I remember there was a story where one of my stepfather's friends had gone through a divorce and actually lived with us for a while after his divorce and really was troubled. And he had other things going on in his life, I'm sure, that I didn't know about. He attempted to commit suicide. Um, and he ended up taking a handgun and was going to put it through his head, but ended up missing. And I, if I recall the story, it went through his neck and he survived. Um, but it was just some of that kind of, you know, that, that was always kind of around the discussions around my house is that sort of the craziness that comes with guns. And so, you know, the other part about it is, is then, especially when people were started drinking and people are drinking beer and then you hear more of this gun talk. And, and then sometimes, you know, you see people bringing out guns when they're drinking and you're like, oh my God, you know, something stupid's going to happen. But that sort of thing was around me all the time, but I was always very uneasy about it. Um, where other members of my family, particularly on my stepfather's side of the family, just really embraced the gun culture. For me, it was something that I really had trouble with. Well, as I'm going through, and you know, I want to share my thoughts on, on these mass shootings and on gun control, but I wanted to kind of set the stage for you there, just so you kind of understand where I'm coming from and what I've been through. Well, one of the things that we're hearing now is people are saying we need more gun control laws. We, we need to have more intense background checks. We need to have um, a cooling off period. So when they go to buy a gun, you don't get it right away. You don't, you'll end up getting it like 10 days later. So you can cool off in case you're buying a gun because you're hot and heated and you want to shoot someone. Um, yeah, the background checks, obviously, to, to prevent guns getting in the hands of certain people, whether they're crazy people or felons, you know, that had uh, already served time in jail. There's and there's a number of other categories where you might think that certain people shouldn't be able to own guns. And people think that's the answer. That's what we need to do. But would that really work? Now, my understanding is, is in Colorado, they have background checks. My understanding in Colorado is, is that they have, um, other gun control laws, but we still have people that do stupid, crazy things with guns and shoot people. And, you know, I'm, I know for some of us, we'd like to wave a magic wand and then there'd be no guns, right? We'd like just to get rid of them because they're just, they're violent weapons and they only are intended to kill people and we don't need these in society. But you can't wave a magic wand. It, it's not possible. And even if you are able to block some people from getting a gun, well, still other people are going to get it. Now, you might say, well, if you can block just one person from getting a gun, then that will save you know, even some lives, and that makes it better. But if you do that, you end up violating the rights of peaceful people from buying guns, right? If you're a peaceful person, a sane person, and you want to buy a gun, well, why should they have to go through, you know, all of these, jump through all of these hoops in order to get it. So you have to, it, it's, it's a tricky thing. There is no easy solution to this. That's, I think, part of the reason why we've been discussing this for so darn long is that there is no clean answer to this. But, 
it's important to understand, I think also, is that America is a unique country. You know, people will talk about, well, yeah, you know, in Japan or in England, they don't have guns. Or in Australia, they got rid of all their guns. They had a big gun buyback program. Well, America, guns are a huge part of the history and the culture in America. Guns are deeply woven in the fabric of society. It's not going to be easy to enact gun legislation. And even if you did, there are like more guns than there are people in America. I mean, think about that. There are more guns in America than there are people. So even if they were able to en- enact any of these gun control laws, well, there you can go out and buy guns from anybody on the black market. You know, private party sellers wouldn't stop people. So it's almost like a game of whack-a-mole, right? You, you want to block people from getting guns here, but then they're still going to find ways to get guns elsewhere. I mean, even we had, remember we had that mass shooting in San Bernardino not too long ago. And California has some of the toughest gun laws in the nation. There were, there was a mass shooting in Santa Barbara. Like I, gosh, when was that? Like 10 or 12 years ago. So I know people are upset. They're like, you got to do something. And there are things that can be done. And I'm going to get to that. There are things that the government can do to partly solve this problem. But I understand people want something, you know, and and they want some action, anything. And so now President Biden and the Democrats, they're calling for more gun control. And frankly, they now have the full control of Congress, both the House and the Senate. They should be able to pass gun control law. And if they some people say, well, you got the filibuster that's going to get in the way. Well, they can vote to get rid of the filibuster. So if the Democrats really want to you know, walk the walk rather than just talking the talk, they can actually do it. If they choose, we'll see if they do. Um, some Again, sometimes it seems like they don't want to solve it. It's just better as a talking point for a lot of these guys. But I, the other thing that I often hear also is you'll hear people say, nobody's coming for your guns, right? They're what they're doing is they're just trying to prevent crazy people from getting guns. But there's no way the government's going to come and try to take away your guns, right? Well, that actually happened in California when Jerry Brown was, was, uh, was the governor. And red flag laws, that's the whole purpose of a red flag law is to take away someone's gun. You know, a red flag law is where someone looks to be a threat to themselves or to others and they have a gun. Someone can report them and then the police will show up and take their guns away so they can't be of any danger to anyone else, including themselves. And then apparently they, they're able to get the gun back after 21 days. Well, we can debate whether or not that's a good policy or not. But the fact is, is we already have cases where government is taking away people's guns. There was also another uh, situation here in California where the – when Jerry Brown was governor, what they did is there were people in California that had bought guns legally, you know, some time ago. And then as the law changed and then certain people were not allowed to buy guns, well, these people still had them. But under the current law, they wouldn't have been allowed to buy them the first time. So then Jerry Brown, when he was governor of California, deployed police to go to those homes where people had those guns and to collect them and take them away, even though they had bought them legally. 
So there's already cases of this where people are coming door to door to collect guns. So I think we got to make sure that when some people say, well, no one's coming for your guns. Well, they are. That is happening. That does happen. But again, I'm I'm of the belief that this is never, ever, ever going to be solved unless the conversation takes place at a much higher level than politics. We do need to solve this problem. It's a terrible problem. Um, not just the mass shootings, but you know, gun violence in in the broader in the broader scope. The conversation needs to take place almost philosophically. You know, what is the proper role of government, and what is the proper use of force by both government and by individuals? Um, and having that conversation at that level, and then. In order to do that, that discussion needs to be, take place when you have strong leadership. And right now, a lot of our politicians, including presidents, are usually very lukewarm on pursuing this issue to, to legitimately solve it. They'll, presidents will give you the talking points that we've heard time and time again from both the left and the right. And it's the same thing we hear over and over and over again. But none of them will really take a stand and address the issue head on. This needs we if we're going to solve this problem in some way, it has to be solved with strong leadership. It has to be solved with almost a a philosophical conversation about the purpose of weapons, the purpose of the government having a monopoly on force and how important it is to individuals to own weapons. and And then when you really get down to policy. Before you even get to talking about gun control laws, there has to be essentially a national conversation about the Second Amendment. Should the Second Amendment continue to exist? Because as long as the Second Amendment exists, there will always be a huge gun culture in this nation. As long as the Second Amendment exists, it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to pass gun control laws. Um, As long as that Second Amendment exists, people are always going to point to it and say, we have a right to own a gun. Now, some people will look at the Second Amendment and say, no, it's a militia. You got to be in a militia to own a gun. But that's not what it says. It says the militia should be well-regulated. That makes sense, right? You got to have, if you're going to have a militia, they got to be organized and well-managed and well-regulated. But the right of the people, not the militia, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So really, again, I'm not, how do I say this? I'm not defending this. I'm just kind of going through the logic of the law. Gun control measures that prevent crazy people from getting guns technically violate the Second Amendment, right? They, they, they are intended to keep guns away from people. They're intended to violate the rights of people to own guns, which is the point, right, of gun control, is they want to keep guns out of the hands of certain people. And I understand that. But the Second Amendment, the way it's written, gives them that right. So this problem is never going to be solved by having these same debates about background checks and the same debates about red flag laws and cooling off periods and 
Um, you know, it's the, this is the same discussion that goes on every time and time again. What has to happen is there has to be strong leadership and a discussion at a much higher level in politics to try to address this. Now, here's the issue is let's say there's a real – let's pretend that there's a, a, a robust conversation about the Second Amendment – including it gets to the point where certain politicians attempt to overturn the Second Amendment to really get to the bottom of this notion of gun control. Well, we know that that would be damn near impossible, right? Because you got to not only get a whole bunch of Republicans to agree, but you also have to get, I don't know, what is it, two-thirds or three-fourths of the states to agree, which means a lot of those red states would have to agree to withdraw the Second Amendment. We know that that is essentially impossible in today's day and age, which, by the way, I, I'm always kind of frustrated by how are the Bill of Rights in general, the first through the Tenth Amendment specifically, how they are constantly being chipped away. And we can discuss the, the virtues or the vices of, of why they're being chipped away, but the very nature of the issue is, is that they are being chipped away. And it's almost like it's too hard to make an amendment to the Constitution. So they end up just passing laws that allows them to get around it. And they end up they end up essentially ignoring the parts of the Constitution that they want to ignore. In my opinion, as long as the Second Amendment exists, you have a right to own a gun. Now, hopefully... <laughs> those land in the hands of good people. But there are lots of bad people in America. That's just the very nature of the beast here. Unfortunately, bad people have equal rights with good people. Um, And if they haven't yet violated the law, they have the right to that weapon. But that creates a whole other set of problems, right? Because you don't want to have guns in the hands of crazy people. You don't want to have guns in the hands of, like, these nut jobs that we saw um, that shot people in in Colorado and in Georgia. Pete Neal on the live stream says, how about adding a tax structure to gun ownership? You know, well, well, think about this. Okay. I've seen cases like this where people are saying, yeah, we should make, we, we should provide some sort of financial incentives or financial penalties to make gun ownership expensive. Well, let's say there's a tax structure applied to guns or even to ammunition, and it becomes expensive to own a gun. Well, who does that harm? It harms a poor person that may actually legitimately need a gun for self-defense. Maybe it's a a woman, a a single mom, and she needs to defend herself because for any variety of reasons. Well, she's the one that ends up getting penalized if we apply a tax uh, structure to the guns, and it never really solves the problem. It's just a lot of this, how do I say, like all these indirect measures to try to chip away at the Second Amendment. I'm saying we should decide if we want a Second Amendment, one way or the other. And then whatever path we take, if we want to reaffirm the Second Amendment, then there's a set of actions we can take to address the problem. And if we want to get rid of the Second Amendment, then there's a different path of things we can do to solve the problem, or at least to make far greater progress than we've made now, because frankly, there's been no progress 
in the last 10 years, 15 years. It's just the thoughts and prayers. And, and then 10 days later, we forget about it. And then two weeks after that, there's another mass shooting. And it happens over and over again. It's like rinse and repeat. It's like Groundhog Day. It just keeps happening. You know, a tax structure, yeah, maybe that'll disincentivize some people and, and then it harms other people. And then, but we still going to, you know, we'll still have mass shootings because there's still, there's more guns in America than there are people. There are 327 million people in America and there's more than 327 million guns. And meanwhile, gun manufacturers, their sales right now are going through the roof. They're creating and cranking out more guns. So it, this is a much deeper problem than simply trying to convince the Republicans to, to enact universal background checks. It's deep, deep, much deeper than that. And But that's what they distract us with, having these conversations about these tangential points without really getting to the core of the issue. The core issue is, should we have a right to own a weapon? So let, let's talk about this. I want to go down both of these pathways, and I'll, I'll keep it relatively brief. We're at 52 minutes. But let's say, as a nation, we reaffirmed that we want the Second Amendment, that we, you know, either there's enough people in America that want to keep the Second Amendment the way it is, or, you know, there's enough people that believe that gun ownership is a right, and we need to protect the Second Amendment. And that hypothetical. Well, what can we do? What's the, what's, the, what's the first thing we should do? we got to stop these mass shootings, right? Well, let's get a sense of proportion here. And you may have heard this argument before, but I want to share this because it's important. So, uh, and this is from a Pew Research study, and I'll post this link in the show notes. Um, in 2017, 39,773 people died of gun deaths. So say roughly 40,000 people died of gun deaths in 2017 in America. 60% of them died of suicide, self-inflicted gunshot wounds, just like my stepfather's friend in the story I told you before, except they were able to actually finish the deal. 60% of gun deaths in America are by suicide. 37% are murder, and then 3% are other. <laughs> other was like unintentional, like a mistake, like someone doing something stupid when they're drunk or by law enforcement, by the way, which we've seen some of those cases as well. Now, the 37% that are murder, of those, of those that are murdered with a gun, 64% of them are with a handgun. Okay, just like a, a you know, a six shooter or something. I don't even know what they're called, but not with these AR-15s. That everyone is so focused on trying to ban. Now, I'm not saying that AR-15s are great things, but that's just have a sense of proportion. That is a teeny, weeny, tiny fraction of the total number of gun deaths that come from AR-15s. In fact, the rifles you know, and assault weapons only account for 4% of the murders, and the murders are only 37% of the total gun deaths. Mike Ryan on the live stream chiming in. I don't think a tax structure is the answer. I think mandatory training before ownership is a must. Maybe a brief psych exam plus background check. Well, that makes a great deal of sense, Mike, assuming people follow the rules. But when you have so many guns throughout society, people are buying guns through the black market. You can't enforce that. That's not possible. People are going to easily get around that. There's going to be training. Well, you know, it's funny. It's like in certain 
countries, I think even in, if I recall, I think Israel actually trains people in high school on how to handle a weapon. I'm not suggesting we do that, but it's interesting. Um, a psych exam, a background check. Yeah, it sounds like in an ideal world, that sounds really good. But the fact is, is that people can get guns from, you know, it is interesting. You can go to Walmart here in Poway in Walmart, you can buy a gun. I think they sell them there. I know in other Walmarts they do. But if you can't get a gun from a retail store, there's always some guy that a guy, you know, a guy that knows a guy, right? And you'll be able to get them. So the point I wanted to get is that the assault rifles are a teeny tiny fraction. And then if you look at mass shootings, now the, the definition of a mass shooting kind of varies depending on who you talk to. But most people will say four or more people were shot or killed. You know, they were either shot and killed or shot and injured four or more in a given incident. That's considered what's called a mass shooting. Obviously, the Atlanta case, the Boulder case, definitely mass shootings. Um, those are the ones that are big in the news. In 2018, okay, remember I said about 40,000 people a year die from gun gunshots. Mass shootings in 2018, 373. That's like 1% of the gun deaths come from mass shootings. But that's what the news media covers over and over again and sensationalizes. And it, that's a big news story. And we need to solve mass shootings. But that's like 1% of the problem. There are 40,000 people that are dying from guns in America every year. 99% of them are not in mass shootings. So what can we do? What's the thing? What can we actually do that would really make a difference? Because if they enacted, um, if they enacted gun control laws, background checks and cooling off periods and more red flag laws, it's not going to change things much, but you know what would ending the war on drugs. And you're thinking, how could you possibly do that? That makes no sense. Well, think about it. The way when you have black market products that are being sold and a deal goes bad, it's not like you can sue a person and take them to court because you're buying and selling illegal stuff, right? Contraband. Um, the way that deals are enforced in the drug culture is all vigilante justice. It is enforced at the point of a gun. So when you hear these stories about Gun deaths, especially in cities, and people talk about Chicago all the time and all the gun deaths in Chicago, they try to make it a race issue, black on black crime and all this stuff, or they try to make it a Democrat versus Republican issue. Well, yeah, Chicago is a Democratic city and those guys are all screwed up. The problem is, is that now, again, I don't know the exact data on this, but I'm willing to make a bet that the majority of those cases are a with handguns. And B, somehow related directly or indirectly with the war on drugs. So if drugs were legalized, then they would be distributed safely. And that whole underground trafficking would be essentially the rug would be pulled out from underneath them. You know, the same thing I talked about before with the border problems. If you want to solve a great deal of that problem is end the war on drugs, then the cartels aren't dealing the contraband underground and creating murder and mayhem south of the border, which is causing people to flee the violence to come to America. 
if they ended the war on drugs in America, you can make a huge difference in reducing the number of people that die needlessly, senselessly from a gun. The other thing that can be done, and you hear, you know, we'll hear politicians talk about this, but there's a lot of people, you know, when they die, say I said 60% of the gun deaths are suicide. There are people that think that life doesn't matter, that it do, they don't care. They're, they're what are called nihilists, right? Life has no meaning. And for them, they don't care. And they just start shooting people or shooting themselves or there's despair for whatever reason, you know, maybe it's the economy or it's COVID and people are down and that despair leads them to wanting to end their life. Well, there are things that can be done there as well. There, there are opportunities we can enact to improve the economy, not just for economic reasons, but to reduce gun violence. I mean, we've seen gun violence has been on a mostly steady downward trajectory since the early 90s. Now, it's gone up a little bit lately, but it's declined dramatically in the last three decades. And it's largely because the economy has gotten a lot better. So if we're able to have strong leadership to talk about improving the economy specifically to give people hope so they don't go to suicide, then I think that's going to also reduce gun deaths far more than getting rid of AR-15s to present, prevent mass shootings, which, by the way, only account for about 1% of gun deaths. So there are things that can be done. So rather than going to the gun and infringing the right to own the gun, in my opinion, what we should be doing is asking why are these people shooting and then solving the why. That's where the problem needs to be solved because the gun shooting and the gun itself, I mean, that's just a symptom of a disease. The disease is the fact that drugs are kept illegal, pushed into the underground, and gangs enforce gun violence, enforce contracts through gun violence. A great example of this, and this is, and again, I cited Chicago and I'm citing gangs. It's not at all a racial issue, not at all, because in the... 1920s, when alcohol was prohibited, gun violence went up because you had all these alcohol bootleggers and mafia guys dealing the booze. I mean, people like Joe Kennedy, John F. Kennedy's father was in that trade. Gun violence, you know, rose. And yet those gangsters were, you know, Bonnie and Clyde and a lot of others in that whole era. I think that Bonnie and Clyde was in the 20s. I'm not sure if they were involved in alcohol distribution, but there was a lot of that that was run by gangsters and, and by the mafia. And there were people that were shot dead. And you know what? If you look at a chart of gun violence is almost immediately after prohibition was ended in 19, what was it? 33. Then gun violence dramatically dropped. Amazing. Why aren't we learning from this in society? Why are we not learning that when you legalize this stuff then it's sold in the open space. It's sold publicly and more safely. And then you don't have a bunch of hooligans and vandals and, and vigilantes that are enforcing these deals at the point of a gun. In fact, you have a more stable environment where these things can be sold and we'll be better off as a result. So there are things that they could do immediately 
to reduce gun violence, but they never go there. The, the, the talk is always about background checks and, and cooling off periods and red flag laws or banning assault weapons and AR-15s. And that's just, they're just missing the big picture. Okay, so now let's imagine for a moment that as a nation, we had this national conversation, we had strong leadership, and they decided that they were going to get serious and they were going to overturn the Second Amendment. Now, again, we know this is very difficult um, because there are so many guns in society and so many people are unbelievably loyal uh, to their right to bear arms. And people say they would die for that right. But again, let's just assume that there was strong leadership and we had that conversation and people's hearts and minds were changed and America came around and decided that, you know, it's the 21st century and there's really no need for a second amendment and let's go ahead and overturn this and let's pretend that they actually got it done, that they actually were able to overturn the second amendment. And then guns, there would be no right to own a gun. And people would think, all right, here we go. Now we can really solve this problem. So what, what, would, ha- what would have to happen? Remember, there are more guns in America than there are people. So how are they going to collect them all? Now, Australia did a buyback. And apparently a lot of the people happily participated in that and the government bought them back. Now, really, the government's buying them back with your own money because it's taxpayer dollars. But still, people were able to turn in their guns and they got money back. Now, do you expect some of these hardcore gun rights people to voluntarily sell their guns? Or have them bought back? Do you expect that um, huge supporters of the Second Amendment are going to willingly give it up? Now, I think if they were strong leadership and they were able to have like a, a serious conversation, it would probably have to take decades to get this done. That they were able to change hearts and minds, and they were able to change the have a philosophical discussion, change the culture, and we're finally at this point where we can end the Second Amendment, well, then I think there would be a certain percentage of hardcore gun rights people that had changed their mind and they would sell them. But there would still be some people that would would, would hold on to them no matter what. I mean, it could even lead to a potential civil war depending on how it shakes out. But what would have to happen? Would, would, Would the police go door to door and collect guns? Well, They might, but that would also violate the Fourth Amendment, right? This notion of um, illegal search and seizure. Mike Ryan says, we've done that before, maybe not nationwide, but locally. You know for a fact they won't turn in their guns. Yeah. The hardcore gun rights people will not turn in their guns, and they would literally die on a mountain or die on a hill (laughs) to protect their gun rights. Now, that's why if we're ever going to get to that point— Right now, there's no way we could flip a switch and get them all to turn in their guns. It's never going to happen. But if there is a a conversation that actually can happen with strong leadership that can change the culture, and it has to be almost a philosophical discussion that is is, uh, kind of dumbed down for the average person, but it has to be at that level, not at a political level, but at a cultural level or a a, – 
at a meaning of life issue, uh, at a meaning of life levels where this conversation needs to happen if the Second Amendment is ever going to be overturned. But if even if they overturn the Second Amendment, then some people might say, well, that's a good thing, because then the only people that would have guns is the government. And frankly, the government should have a monopoly on force. Right. If the government has a monopoly on force, then they could properly secure our inalienable rights of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. They could find people that murder or assault or rape or commit fraud and using the force and power of government. They could hold those people to account. And darn it, that's that's when we got a society that really works is if government has the power of the gun then they can properly enforce this. And if people don't have the power of the gun, then they can't harm other people nearly to the same degree. But the danger in that is that the government's power never stays limited in scope. The government keeps expanding their power. And we see loss of life like Breonna Taylor, who was in her apartment asleep when the police busted in their door and a a shooting match happened and she lost her life. Now, a lot of that's because of the war on drugs, that if there was no war on drugs, the police wouldn't have busted down their door because they were looking for drugs and they were looking for a drug dealer, which turned out to be Breonna Taylor's old boyfriend, who, by the way, was already in police custody. And there's a lot of other cases where, you know, police are killing people by they're not protecting and serving but they're violating the rights of people. Like a great example, I remember Eric Garner. So Eric Garner was this guy in New York City and he bought cigarettes, like a pack of cigarettes at a convenience store. And then he was on a street corner selling them. They were called Lucy's, right? He was basically selling cigarettes one at a time. And that's illegal because not only does he not have a permit to sell anything, yeah, I guess you have to have a permit to buy and sell things, but he also doesn't have a a permit to sell tobacco products. And, and so what happened to him, the police gang tackled him, choked him and he lost his life. So if the police have a monopoly on power, monopoly of the gun, then the police, their scope has to be very narrow and we got to keep the police in their lane. So they're properly enforcing the law to protect people's rights, but not going beyond that scope to violate the rights of others. Mike Ryan says, you need to think of civilian safety from criminals. Criminals will not turn in their guns. Armed criminals will be more inclined to get away with robbing innocent people in their homes. Yeah, that's the whole argument. Um, what is it? If, if, uh, if they ban guns, then only the bad people will have guns because the good people will turn them all in. Yeah. So, this is just not an easy thing. There is no easy answer to this, but we keep having this Groundhog Day situation where we keep having the same conversation. And there's the mass shootings that are sensationalized in the news, as they should be, and people are losing their life. But still, there's no focus on a lot of these handgun deaths. 60% of gun deaths are suicide. Um, a huge percentage of the murders of, you know, 64% of murders are actually by a handgun. There, we could have way bigger impact in reducing gun violence if we address those issues than if we try to address mass shootings. 
Now, we need to address mass shootings. Of course, I'm not discounting that. But mass shootings only account for roughly 1% of gun deaths. They just get 99% of the news coverage, and they get everyone fired up. So I'm of the belief that if we're going to ever really solve this, and I don't know if we ever will. It certainly won't be solved in my lifetime. But if we're ever really going to get to a point where we can reduce senseless killings, the only way that's going to be done is if, A, we got strong leaders that are willing to stand on principles and will not back down. Rather than just giving talking points and giving a speech, uh, you've got to have leaders that are willing to stake their career on the issue and be able to change the culture in America one way or the other to either keep the Second Amendment, but do it in a way that people can live safely and reduce gun violence. And I already gave you some ways they can do it right away. And the war on drugs. Right away, they're going to save tremendous number of lives that are way more lives will be saved by ending the war on drugs than those that are unfortunately shot in mass shootings. Or they can have a discussion. And if you're going to really have gun control, you're never really going to have it unless you remove the Second Amendment. Because technically, any form of gun control is an infringement of the Second Amendment by definition. Now, certain cities and states and even the federal government, they've passed gun control laws to essentially violate the rights of some people to own a gun. People, they choose, they're like cafeteria Catholics, right? They, they choose to ignore certain parts of the Bill of Rights and they'll, you know, adhere to others. But right now, the way the Second Amendment exists, and it does exist, and that's reality. You can't deny reality. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, meanwhile, the militia should be regulated, but not the people. The people have the right to own a gun. Now, you may not like that. You may not think that's the right people. We shouldn't have the right to own a weapon. And that's a fair conversation. And if that's the people's belief, then we need to either A, figure out how to create a society that we can live more safely while still protecting gun rights, or B, we need to eliminate the gun right entirely. But we can't keep having the same conversation over and over again about background checks and about red flag laws and about cooling off periods and about banning assault weapons, because that's not really the big part of the problem. The problem is much larger than that and much deeper. And it is so, guns are such a huge part of American culture. This is be, this may never ever be solved. Now, it is interesting that on one hand, in Australia, there's gun buybacks and people are pr- giving up their guns. And apparently in Australia, it's working really well. But in Switzerland, I may not say this exactly right, but in Switzerland, everyone can own a gun. In fact, they, they encourage it or maybe they even mandate it. And do we ever hear of mass shootings in Switzerland? We don't. 
there is a, there's a lot of crap in the American culture that is really screwed up. And it leads people to make terrible choices with guns. The guns, some would say that's the problem. But really, it's the people that are the problem, or more importantly, the culture and the values in this nation that are a problem. In some cases, it's policy, like the war on drugs, that's a problem. In other cases, it's a way overly aggressive police force that is the problem. There's no easy answer here, folks. I mean, to forgive the the pun, there's no silver bullet. But I just wish the conversation would change. I wish people would talk about this from a different approach rather than rinse and repeat Groundhog Day talking about the same damn thing over and over again. And it's never going to change unless there's strong leadership. And now Joe Biden, what's he doing? He's talking about background checks and banning assault weapons. Meanwhile, 60% of the people are shot because of suicide. And, and then another huge percentage of the murders are done by a handgun, you know, just a little handgun. And a lot of that, I would bet, is because you have gangs that are enforcing their own vigilante justice in the war on drugs. That's what a lot of the drive-by shootings are. So I don't know. I'm just getting sick and tired of having the same damn conversation. Mike Ryan on the live stream, says, people are the problem. You just don't know when someone is going to lose it and hurt people. Yeah, you're right. But our leaders are a problem too, because our leaders they, they wuss out. They won't, they won't really address the problem. Or they give up and they say, we just got to accept it. It is what it is. It's been so politicized that people can't see it for what it really is. People are too hung up on the political angle of it rather than actually rolling up their sleeves and solving the problem. You know, Ted Cruz was... Um, I saw a little piece of him on the news. Ted Cruz was saying, if you enact more gun control laws, well, what that ends up doing is it doesn't solve the problem. And bad people can still get guns. And now good people, law-abiding people, are having their rights violated. He's right. and But he got lambasted for that. But factually, that's correct. Imagine if Ted Cruz changed his mind on guns. Ted Cruz probably wouldn't get reelected in the state of Texas. Ted Cruz, you know, he almost lost his last election to Beto O'Rourke. But Texas is changing, right? The culture in Texas is changing. Texas is now purple. Maybe it's going to be blue in 2028 or 2032. Will even if Texas was blue, I still think Texas would support gun rights because it's Texas. And Texas has a culture. So again, this issue is not going to be solved by some politicians passing a law, even though people are desperate that something has to be done. And yeah, 
we do need to do something. But the conversation needs to be at a way higher level. This is a discussion of values, of morality, of philosophy. And then we need to really take a serious look at the Second Amendment and decide, do we want a Second Amendment or not? Because that is ultimately, if you're going to do anything by policy, the Second Amendment is the one that has to be addressed straight on. You know, it's like in the, um, uh, God, what book was that? Was it the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? I think it was in that one. And it was Confront the Brutal Facts. As long as the Second Amendment exists, there will never be sufficient enough gun control laws to really get guns out of the hands of crazy people. But it's hard to overturn the Second Amendment. So that's why they do all these end arounds and try to limit people's rights. But when they do that, gun control laws, by definition, violate the Second Amendment. So there's no easy answer. Mike Ryan says, fantastic show, John. Mike, thank you. I appreciate you listening and and watching. Steve Dow, jumping in on the live stream. Um, Argument, colon, what is wrong with the idea of banning weapons of war? We do it for nuclear weapons. Okay, what's a weapon of war? Is a handgun a weapon of war? No. Is an AR-15, a semi-automatic rifle, a weapon of war? I don't think so. I mean, a weapon of war is like a nuclear bomb or a, a machine gun. That's a weapon of war. Is an AR-15 a weapon of war? I don't think it is, is it? Um, but it, you know, this is this. We're getting kind of the, one of the common talking points. But let's go down this rabbit hole, Steve. So some people will say, well, the Second Amendment, when it was written in, God, what would it be, 17, was it 81 or was it 87, I think, when it was written? Um, We didn't have nuclear bombs back then. We didn't have machine guns and tanks. And of course, they didn't mean that. I mean, we just had these muskets, you know, where you had to put like a, you know, like a pellet down a gun and a a stick and gunpowder. And that's what people used, right? So clearly they didn't think about all these other weapons because they didn't, they didn't exist. But then at the same time, they passed the First Amendment. They gave people the right to free speech, but they had no idea there'd be an internet or television or radio. But still the free speech applies there, or at least it should, right? So the way the Second Amendment is written, I mean, yeah, Steve, <laughs> the way the Second Amendment is written, you have the right to have nuclear weapons. Now, I don't, can't imagine anyone would want that. I don't think your next door neighbor would suddenly want to build a nuclear bomb. That's not, I mean, that's kind of a crazy example. But this gets to the point of we need to address the Second Amendment. We need to have a conversation about that, (laughs) not about gun rights, because technically you have the right to a nuclear weapon, according to the Second Amendment. The right of people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And I know it sounds crazy. Who would want your next door neighbor to have a nuclear bomb? I mean, no one wants that. But the Second Amendment leaves that technically open as a possibility. Mike Ryan says, no, it's not. I'm not sure what Mike is talking about. Um, 
Steve Dow chimes in. My point in this discussion is needed. Where is the line? Right. Well, that's the problem with the Second Amendment is that according to the Second Amendment, there is no line. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, period. The militia should be well regulated, but the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So the minute you start limiting certain people from certain weapons, you're infringing and therefore violating the Second Amendment. So that's why the conversation needs to be about the Second Amendment and either reaffirming it or modifying it or eliminating it. That's where the discussion needs to be. Pete Neal says, I'm sorry, I missed a lot of the discussion. I'm still trying to find a reason for a 25-mile-per-hour speed limit in Nevada. Yeah, 25 miles an hour. That's crazy low. I was on the loneliest road in America, Highway 50, and you know, you're going like 70, 80 miles an hour, if not more. If I was in Calypso, I'd go, be going 110. And then I come over that mountain, I'm coming into the city, and you know, it's like a speed trap. Some of these little cities, like the towns, you figure the cops – Put up these speed traps. That's how they make money. But I got let off. Thank goodness. Mike Ryan says, an AR-15 is not a weapon of war, is what I was responding to. Yeah, I don't think an AR-15 is a weapon of war. I think if, if you had equipped the U.S. Army when they go into Iraq or Afghanistan to fight on the ground and you just handed them an AR-15, they'd probably laugh at you. Now, an AR-15 is a hella powerful weapon, especially for an individual here in America, a non-military person. It's very powerful. I don't think it's a weapon of war, though. Now, the other angle of this is, is we need to ban assault weapons, right? But isn't every weapon an assault weapon? Because that's the whole point of the weapon is to assault. So see all this rhetoric and politicization and, and still we never solve the problem. We keep having the same damn conversation over and over and over again. And now we have, we're having more mass shootings. That's true. Mass shootings have gone up from like one or two a year to now 15 or 16 a year, over one a month. A mass shooting defined as four or more people that are either shot and killed or shot and injured. So we can't keep having the same discussion over again. It's like that was the one, you know, if you... The very definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So, you know, again, I, I know I, I, I raise this topic because I just want to talk it out. And, you know, I, I'm just a guy, a guy with a podcast, and I appreciate everyone's thoughts and comments. And I'm sure we'll probably get a lot of comments in social media after this episode, after I post it. But. I think it needs to be talked about, and I think we need to talk about it in a way that's different than the the same old way, the same old talking points that we've been hearing over and over again for 20 or 30 years. How often do you hear people talking about ending the war on drugs as a strategy to reduce gun violence? Almost never. People will make the argument to end the war on drugs for a variety of other reasons, but never within the context of saying, if we want to make a significant reduction in the amount of gun deaths, we just got to legalize drugs. Who ever talks about that? No one. Or if we want to have a serious reduction in the number of gun deaths, 
is that we need to have a national emergency to solve the problem of suicide. And these are the things that we need to do in our nation to overcome people being left with despair, people being nihilist, people thinking their life doesn't matter, people thinking there's no escape, no way out. You know, there's some conversation about that in and of itself, you know, um, in terms of mental health, but never really in terms of, and even there's some conversation about mental health with mass shooters, but that's a tangential point of the whole thing. Um, What about the mental health of the people that are committing suicide? That's far greater numbers of people that are dying than from mass shooting. So have a sense of proportion. Not easy. There's no easy answer to this. But right now, what do we hear? We hear the nonsense, right? So now the the shooting in Atlanta is more about whether or not the debate is whether or not it's a hate crime. And that's a whole other conversation. But they're missing the point of why in the hell are, are people resorting to a gun and shooting people in general? And then we could look at the one in Colorado. And what are they framing that is? Is at first they said, oh, it's another example of uh, guns because it's the shooter is a, is a white guy. It's always a white male. And they're the ones. And so they, you know, again, it's, it's identity politics and it's the same way they're spinning it. And then they found out that this guy is actually Syrian. And so now they're making about that. Some people are saying he's a foreigner. Some people are saying, well, he was probably angry because Joe Biden just bombed Syria. Never mind the fact that Trump bombed Syria. But they, all these distractions. And they say, we got to ban AR-15s. And yeah, there were 10 people that died in Boulder. Tragic, awful. Eight people that died in Atlanta. Tragic and awful. But there are 40,000 people that die at the point of a gun in America. Every year. Have a sense of proportion is what we need to do when we're looking at this. So, okay, so I'm I'm rambling here. Uh, But I I really invite your thoughts, comments, questions. You know, you could really help me out in this podcast. Just share it with a friend. Um, Click on the share button on Facebook or on YouTube. Share it with a friend or tell someone about it. You know, we also post it wherever you get your podcasts, you know, like Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, IR Radio, Pandora. We're on all those platforms as well not just YouTube and Facebook where I live stream. So tell people about it. I invite their thoughts and comments. I'm going to do more episodes um, coming up here that are going to be more local because I think that's important. I think that we don't have enough conversation of local issues enough. And again, there's 3 million talking heads that are talking about the gun issues right now. And that would be good enough reason not to talk about it because there's enough talk already. But I thought I had a different perspective and I thought it was important to share that. And heck, even here in the city of Poway, we had a mass shooting at the Poway Chabad. We're quickly approaching the two-year anniversary of that terrible event. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, there is a local angle to this. Mike Ryan on the live stream chime in. Love to do another show with you, John. Yeah, Mike, I would love that too. Let's schedule it. You know, we can maybe do it. You know, as we've done here, you know, with a remote or I don't know, is it safe enough to get together? (laughs) I think, you know, the numbers for COVID are going down, but now we're hearing about these variants. I don't know. You know, when I was on my trip, 
I was pretty good. I was almost isolated 99.9% of the time. And then when I was around other people, um, I was good about wearing my mask and social distancing. But I'll tell you what, once you get in those rural areas of Nevada, a lot less people care about masks. But there's still a lot to do. Are we at the point where we can have in-person podcasts? I would love to get back to that. The conversations are so much better, not just for me, but I think for the audience. So yeah, let's, uh, Mike, let's schedule something. I'd love to do it. So um, I'm back vaccinated. You're vaccinated. Good. I haven't even gotten mine yet. My wife is vaccinated because she works in healthcare. My mother has had both her vaccinations. I'm in my 50s and I don't know if, if I've been able to get it. I think you have to be 65 and over, right? I don't think they've opened it up to the next tier. So I'm waiting. I've even got my first shot. I've got nothing. Um, I got my flu shot, <laughs> but not. Now, I think, by the way, I was really sick in February of 2020, the month before the COVID thing really broke out. I mean, I was really sick. I mean, I hadn't been that sick and I can't remember. I wonder if I had COVID. I talked to my doctor about it and she insisted, no, the virus really wasn't spreading much until March. But I had something in February of 2020. I don't know what it was, but man, I was knocked down far worse than any flu that I can recall ever having. Mike says, Galit got hers, so you're you're available for it. So yeah, so Mike's wife got it. Good for her. I need to call in my health provider, see if I can get in. But I think I'm not allowed. That's why I haven't gone in and gotten mine yet. Okay. Um, so anyways, like I do on all these podcasts, I always have a final quote and I like to look online for clever quotes. And I thought, what's this, something that's relevant? And I go, should I do a quote about gun control? I'm like, ah, that's just, we talk too much about that or about equal pay for equal work. Well, how about this? Let's do a, 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 a closing quote on road trips. And this one is by the unknown author and it says, sometimes you find yourself in the middle of nowhere. And sometimes in the middle of nowhere, you find yourself. And I'll tell you what, that is very, very true. And, and when I've gone on the two previous sabbaticals, my, I call them my COVID sabbaticals, where I go away, I find a cheap Airbnb, and I work remotely just to break the cycle. And I'm alone, and I'm alone in the desert. Because I went to Pahrump twice, and then this time I went all the way up to Eureka, Nevada. Um. I almost feel like, you know, I don't know, this is probably a bad analogy, but like, you know, when Christ wandering in the desert, where we hear other cases of people wandering in the desert, trying to find themselves. I'll tell you what, I, when I go on these trips, I come back, I've, I learn new things about me. And I also am able to get a new perspective on things. I always come back from this with at least one important lesson that I've been able to teach myself as a result of it because I'm on the drive and it's lonely and I'm in my room working on my business and it's lonely and I have a lot of time to think. And I tell you what, this quote is right on the money. Sometimes you find yourself in the middle of nowhere and sometimes in the middle of nowhere, you find yourself. When I was in Amargosa Valley, I was in the middle of friggin' nowhere. I was in a manufactured house that looked like a gigantic Lego. And by the way, I think I mentioned it. That manufactured house was really nice inside. It was like well-built. It wasn't like a flimsy mobile home from the 1970s where the, the walls would flex and the floor to flex. This was like a solid construction and it had all the upgrades. It was really nice. 
but from the outside, it was a Lego and 360 degrees in every direction. There was nothing except the, the Lego a hundred yards away where the, uh, the, uh, the owners lived. Mike Ryan says, call CVS, go online. Yeah, I, I need to call my healthcare provider. Uh, Mike says, life's a journey. Enjoy the ride. Yutaka Katsuyama, the father of the Z. Right on. Yeah, life's a journey. Enjoy the ride. So there are great benefits in going on a road trip. And I, I had a really good one. I'm sorry I missed doing the podcast last Friday and Monday. I had hoped to do a re, uh, recorded one and I was going to upload it. And I, and I just said, you know what, I'll just resume when I get back. So here I am. Wednesday at two. Gosh, we're already at an hour and a half. So let's just wrap this up. So anyways, I'll be back at you Friday at two. It's always Monday, Wednesday, Friday at two. Mike, reach out to me. Let's schedule something. Um, Steve, if you're still listening or watching, I got your book and I've already started reading your book. So let's schedule something there. I'd love to have the conversation with you about your new book. I think it's a fascinating topic. Um, I'm, I would definitely prefer to have guests so we can talk through issues rather than just me uh, on my soapbox. And that's why I love now we're doing live streams so I can get other people's thoughts and comments as we go through this. Um, okay. So this is the John Riley project episode number 215. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And we'll catch you later friends. Bye-bye.